this passage is, is a sobering one. I really, really enjoyed. I enjoy every week, but uh, studying. But this week was uh, definitely a special one, but one that not necessarily makes you feel good. It's one that uh, convicts every time I would read through it and I would study it and try to grasp the the message of it. Powerful, powerful truths, and I hope that you will take some time this week to meditate on it this afternoon when we have our dinners. I'm really looking forward to those. We have our care group dinners tonight, and we will take a time to go through some discussion. If you see those in your bulletin, we'll, we'll work through those tonight as well, and we are going to try to get as much, squeeze as much truth out of this passage as we can. But for this morning, we're going to try to explain what the overall meaning of these two conversations are and hopefully add a little bit to your wealth of knowledge and more importantly, inspire you to uh, follow as Jesus commands us as I have been myself this week. Have you ever anticipated an upcoming event, built your mind around it, over a long period of time. Graduation for students was uh, yesterday. I'm sure that was something you look forward to, probably from the first time you had to get up really early for barn chores. Um, weddings, graduations, birthdays, Christmas. How many of you are keeping track of how many days there are until Christmas already? Good. It's not time, but I know there are people that do that. Maybe it was a trip or it's a vacation that you were going to take. Maybe it's meeting someone new. Maybe someone has talked to you uh, about this. They've talked it up to you and they've really sold you on this idea of this new and exciting adventure that is awaiting you. You have bought into it and you're ready to just see for yourself this is going to be the best thing ever. And you wait for the days and the weeks and the months. You plan, you prepare for that big day to arrive, and you imagine everything that's going to happen. I mean, you play it through in your mind exactly how it's going to go, what you're going to do, where you're going to be, what you're going to say, what that person's going to be like, and how much fun you're going to have, how many memories you're going to make. And in your imagination, you're convinced this is going to be an awesome trip. The best vacation you've ever had Maybe the happiest day of your life. And then the day comes, you get there, it's nothing like you imagine. In fact, it's worse than you imagine. Nothing like you hoped it would be. That person is a jerk. The location is a dump. It rains the whole time. Somebody gets sick. The list goes on and on. No doubt something like that has happened to you. Often in life, we get ideas in our heads of what something is going to be like and we let our imaginations run wild. We get so excited of what will be only to be very disappointed with what is. And our hopes that have flown so high suddenly come crashing to the ground. This happens in all kinds of areas in our lives. Marriage can be like that. We imagine, remember what, what you thought about being married before you got married? How you would 
stare into each other's eyes all day long, hold each other in your arms, always in love. She's always going to be beautiful. He will always have the right things to say. And then the honeymoon is over. You enter the real world, faced with bills, in-laws, short tempers, knowing habits, bad breath, sick children. Even with children, what we imagine it will be like to have children is usually different than what it is actually like to have children. Maybe it's a new job, a new house, some new toy you just have to have that promises to be just what we need to change your life forever. Until it isn't. Every time this happens to us, it leaves us feeling a little bit more disappointed, disenchanted, dissatisfied with the choices that we've made. In our passage today, we read about two men who came to Jesus and committed themselves to discipleship. This is a rather familiar passage, I think, for most of us, if not all of us. So you can already imagine how this, you already know how the story began and unfolded. But I want you to try to put yourself in this situation and really try to see it uh, play out. These men have come to Jesus. They've decided to follow Christ. And they come to present themselves to Him. But the response that Jesus gave each man was opposite what they expected. Very, very different than what they anticipated. In fact, Jesus shattered their expectations of being one of His disciples. And if we read it carefully, it seems that Jesus actually discouraged them from following Him. From these two conversations, I want to reveal to you here two important aspects of discipleship that we need to realize if we are going to follow Christ. And the fact that you are here is somewhat of an indication that you are interested in following Christ. and uh, Or someone told you that this is they were having food after church and they lied to you, so you are here to follow Christ. In the first conversation there, beginning in verse number 18, we read of a scribe who approached Jesus. Jesus had just given orders to His disciples to set sail uh, and go on to the other side. If we read some of the other passages in this of this account, we read that uh, they were at the Sea of Galilee and He was making His way over to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and so many of His disciples are getting things ready and they are walking down to the boats and, and I'm sure carrying what provisions they may need or getting all of the last minute details. And here comes a scribe as Jesus is trying Himself to get ready to go. And scribes, as you know, you may know, are teachers of the law. They were really smart guys. They were very intellectual, very academic. They knew the Scriptures, and because of that, people held them in very high esteem. They were very respected men. Now, later on in Jesus' ministry, if you've read the Gospels, you know that scribes were some of Jesus' greatest opponents. These were, uh, these were always linked with the Pharisees. These were the people that gave Jesus a lot of His problems in His ministry. But this one is different. This man is ready to sign up with Jesus. He's ready to head off and be a disciple of Christ. Now we look in verse number 18 and we see right away that he uses the word teacher. He, he called him teacher. And this is a high compliment because being a teacher himself, he was recognizing Jesus as a teacher. 
but not just as another teacher, not just as a colleague, but he is calling Jesus his teacher, which means that he is acknowledging Jesus as a teacher of teachers. He's the best of the best. He's another step up. Uh, No doubt he had heard Jesus' teaching before and was uh, very impressed. As we read the end of chapter 7, and Jesus finished His Sermon on the Mount, and the, the people there uh, were just amazed at the authority with which Jesus spoke. And maybe the scribe was there for that. Maybe he had heard something else. But whatever he had heard uh, impressed him and said, I need to sit at the feet of this man. And you know, maybe he was uh, intending to flatter Jesus by calling him a teacher. Uh, but by addressing him as such, this scribe was submitting himself to Jesus' teaching then he makes his commitment. And his commitment is, is, is this. I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus, I'm ready to go wherever I'll be there. Now this seems very honest and sincere. In fact, I, I really, if we just look at his words, I really can't find any fault with his words. In fact, it sounds like a lot of other commitments that we've read uh, in other places in the Scriptures. One you may not be as familiar with, but you can look at it uh, Later on, in 2 Samuel 15, there was a man named Ittai. And Ittai had uh, linked himself up with King David right before Absalom decided to rebel. And King David decided it was time to leave. He didn't want to fight his son Absalom. And so he left and he told Ittai, hey, you don't need to do this. You can leave without any trouble. Uh, Absalom's not going to bother you. Just go ahead and don't trouble yourself. And Ittai declares his loyalty to King David. And he says this, as the Lord lives, and as the Lord, as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Now, another one that is probably more familiar to you is the commitment that Ruth made to Naomi. In Ruth 1.16, she says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Wherever you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Very strong commitments. We admire them for such a commitment to another person. Maybe this scribe uh, was uh, seeing his uh, commitment to Christ as advantageous to Jesus. After all, to have such an influential and well-connected man in the group would no doubt be an asset to Jesus' ministry. His connections, Jesus would have greater opportunities to spread His message, more open doors to teach uh, to teach people, and, and, and just overall a much more impactful ministry. But as we all know, words only go so far. There's another commitment that a man made to Christ. It turned out very different than the ones from Ruth and Ittai. Peter made a commitment in Matthew 26. Verse 33, Jesus had told the twelve disciples of things that were going to happen. And and part of that, He said, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to forsake Me. And Peter spoke up right away. And he said, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, tonight you're going to deny Me three times. And again, Peter spoke up and said, Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. We all know how that story turned out. Exactly as Christ said it would. Commitments don't always get followed through. Anybody can say something. 
Anybody can make a commitment, but following through with that, that's another thing. And now Jesus' response to the man kind of shows us uh, what was wrong with his statement. Shows us that Jesus saw past the flattery, the bold words, to the truth in the man's heart. So he says in verse number 20 there that the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. Now this was not anything what the scribe was anticipating. I mean, this was, this was neither excitement on Jesus' part for having a new recruit, nor was it instruction on what to do next. I mean, I'm sure this guy's thinking, okay, Jesus, you're either really happy that I'm with you, wow, we can use you, or, all right, carry this, you know, do something. And Jesus gives him neither a yes or a no. Instead, he explained to him, and really to anybody standing by, and then thousands of years later to us, the reader, what to expect if you're going to follow Christ. He says there's no guarantee of basic provisions. Jesus was clear from the very beginning of what it meant to follow Him. That it meant uncertainty of simple, basic, worldly comforts. The scribe said, I will go wherever you go. And Jesus responded, will you go this far? Really understand what this means. See, when we follow Jesus, all we're guaranteed is Jesus. That's what he's telling the scribe here. I don't have a place to stay. Now we read all through the Gospels and we see that Jesus had, he didn't stay in the, in the open sky every night. He did have friends and he did stay in homes, but he's getting this guy to understand there's no guarantee of things that you might be used to. When you follow me, that's all you're guaranteed is me. There's no promise of physical comfort, no hints of earthly pleasure, fame, or fortune. There's no assurance that it's going to be fun, easy, or even profitable. In fact, we read quite the opposite when Jesus later on said in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a guarantee of loss, not gain. It's a guarantee of death. Indeed, the Apostle Paul knew about this firsthand. He wrote to Timothy, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Following Jesus is going to cost something. And see, Jesus here is not looking to trick people or fool them into following Him. He wasn't looking to gather crowds around Him. He was looking to call committed followers. He wasn't looking for celebrity Christians even but obedient disciples. You know how in our culture today we, we get really excited in Christian circles when big names profess to be Christians. Oh, so-and-so, football star, he's a Christian. That's going to be good. This movie star says they're a Christian now or this person or this person. Jesus doesn't seem to be interested in the celebrity status of a follower. He's looking at the commitment level. In fact, at the very beginning of our passage, verse number 18, we notice that Jesus left when He saw the crowds. That's kind of the opposite of what, what you do according to church growth books, according to how you build a business. When you see the crowds, you don't run from the crowds. You don't run the crowds off. You take advantage of it. And once you have that crowd, you don't tell them what could go wrong. You tell them what they want to hear, right? 
mean, come on, Jesus, get with it. Don't you know how to build a church? Don't you know how to gather followers? You don't tell them what they want, what they need to hear. You tell them what they want to hear. You let them get hooked. You let them get, uh, get, you know, get them a little ways. And then you deliver the blow. Then you tell them the bad news. But see, here we, we find Jesus scribe expresses his commitment and Jesus explained the cost. Now, the problem with this here is that the scribe hadn't counted the cost. We see that by Jesus' reply. Now, we can't know for sure what the scribe's motivations were, but as a scribe, this man was probably used to a a higher standard of living than most. Uh, John Calvin suggested that he was accustomed to a life of ease and comfort and fame and was likely looking for more of the same, or maybe to a higher degree, in following Christ. Maybe he thought simply that Jesus was such a great teacher that he wanted to commit himself to discipleship but he didn't fully understand what it meant to follow Jesus. Now, in our own lives, we can expect ease and comfort and honor in following Christ. Christianity in this century, in this place in the world, has seemed to uh, become that type of of a mentality that following Jesus means good things await you. And yes, good things do come to committed Christians. God blesses us and has blessed us in many ways but it's always through the way of the cross. Good things we enjoy from God in this life cannot be expected. Certainly not guaranteed to us. We commit to following Christ, understanding what it costs. Because it will cost something. If you're going to follow Jesus, it is going to cost you something. You must follow knowing that it will be difficult. We spent time in the Sermon on the Mount talking about the narrow way, the hard way. It's not easy. If the road you're on is easy, and it doesn't require any kind of a sacrifice, any kind of commitment, you're not on the narrow way. Jesus says that we must expect that if we're going to follow Him, we must carry a cross. What we find here is that this scribe romanticized discipleship. He kind of built it up in his head as, as, as this wonderful, romantic, sentimental idea of what it would be like to follow Jesus. Maybe he thought about how awesome it would be to be out on the boat in open waters and hear Jesus teaching from the boat. Maybe he thought it would be awesome to be a part of these miracles and maybe he would have a chance to fill in for Jesus on his days off. I don't know what this guy thought of, but he was romanticizing discipleship. Maybe, like many of the Jews of that day, he had a Jewish expectation of what Messiah would be. Remember, the Jews thought that Messiah was going to come in, usher in the brand new kingdom, kick Rome out, and set up the rule. And Messiah was going to rule the world. Maybe this guy thought that he was kind of getting in on the ground floor. Because if he committed early with Jesus, this early investment, then when Jesus was sitting on the throne, surely he would show this guy some favor. Hey, you've been with me since the beginning. You've been with me since the start of this. Maybe maybe that was his motive. Often in our own lives, we romanticize certain areas of our lives, including our Christian discipleship. But get this, don't follow Christ for the perks that may or may not come. Follow Christ for Christ. Follow Jesus to get Jesus. Now, in the second conversation, we see another disciple. And that's really all it describes to us, that another disciple approached Jesus. 
both of these men are considered to be disciples or people who at the very least are would-be disciples. They would follow Jesus. This man approaches. Maybe he had overheard Jesus' previous interaction with the scribe and he wanted to express his desire to follow, but he had a certain condition. He called Jesus Lord, different from calling Jesus teacher. This also sounds like a great way to start because all those who come to Christ must acknowledge that He is Lord. But there's a problem. Notice what He says. His thought was, Jesus, I'll follow, but first, let me bury my Father. Now, again, this seems like a very perfectly reasonable request. What kind of person is going to tell tell a guy who just lost his dad, no, don't bury your dad. Leave him and follow me. But in, in, in Jewish culture, it was honor and the responsibility of, of children to honor their parents, including seeing to a proper, a proper burial. But again, we find Jesus not replying in the way that we would expect. We find Jesus making a statement that really is disturbing for a lot of people and very confusing. It seems cold. It seems heartless. He says, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. I mean, what? Just imagine standing there and hearing Jesus say this. You're like, did he say what I thought he said? Are you? <laughs> Jesus, he wants to bury his dad. <laughs> and you're saying let the dead bury their dead? I mean, first this scribe came to him and he did all he could to discourage the man from following him. And now he's, he's practically running this guy off with cold and heartless, insensitive statements. Let's ask ourselves a question. Is Jesus really being cold and uncaring? I mean, can we find any other places in the Scriptures where Jesus is so cruel, heartless? Maybe we need to take another look. Maybe we need to have an understanding of what's going on behind the scenes. After studying Jesus' words here and in other places, it seems that Jesus is once again using hyperbole to get His point across. You remember back in Matthew 5? It was like six years ago when we were in Matthew 5. And we were uh, studying about when Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your, if your right hand is going to cause you to sin, chop it off. And he says, it's better for you to go to heaven. I'm paraphrasing. It's better to go to heaven without an eye or an arm than it is to go to hell with a body intact. And was Jesus seriously suggesting there that we should chop off our hands and gouge out our eyes? No, I don't think so. But what he's doing is suggesting that we get to the root of the issue. What matters more to you? Having a body that is intact yet goes to hell? Or having a body that has been made sacrifices to keep sin from it? And the case here that he's, he's revealing the man's priorities. I don't think Jesus is forbidding the man to bury his father, but he was showing the man what mattered most to him. The man, unlike the scribe, had counted the cost. But he was unwilling to pay it. Interestingly enough, this phrase doesn't probably doesn't mean what we in the 21st century America think it means. If someone came to me and said, I need to bury my father, I would assume your dad just passed away and you're going to his funeral. But in this day and time, it probably meant something very different. Scholars suggest that the term meant waiting until the father died, which could have been years from then. And so essentially, this man is saying, let me stay home, take care of my folks, 
collect my inheritance, fulfill my responsibility to them. When they die, I'll bury them, and then I'll follow you. This man was delaying his discipleship. He wanted to follow Jesus, but later. The following can't wait. At the very least, this was requested to, to, to delay for 30 days because they, they, of the Jewish requirement for burial and, and, a, and a mourning period. And in this context, Jesus is leaving right now. I can't wait for you. But the underlying problem here is that the man wanted to do discipleship on his own terms. When I'm ready, and after I've done what I want to do, then I'll follow you. But see, Jesus demands our total allegiance, 100% commitment. Jesus sets the agenda, not us. He decides what discipleship terms will be like. D.A. Carson calls this qualified discipleship. He wrote this, Jesus' concern is not so much to forbid all who would follow Him from attending the funerals of near relatives as it is to expose the danger of merely qualified discipleship. He goes on to say that the point is not so much that people should not be concerned for their parents, but that if concern for parents becomes an excuse for not following Jesus or for delay in following Jesus, then concern for parents, as important as it is, is being too highly valued. See, following Jesus is not something that we do when it fits into our plans. Following Christ is not something that we do on our timeline. Jesus isn't okay when we fit Him into our schedule. He demands that we fit into His. Christ is not a spiritual fix. We don't try Jesus out and see how it works. There's no 30-day money-back guarantee. Discipleship is an all-in commitment. 100% allegiance. And we're commanded to love God with all our hearts, all our souls, all our mind, all our strength, which means that it leaves nothing for my own agenda. He makes the rules. He calls the shots. Not me. Discipleship is not a job that you can quit if you don't like what the work demands of you. It's service. It binds us to Christ, our Master. Read Paul's letters and, just, and how he describes the way that his, he, the way he saw his relationship to Christ. He was God's slave. Slaves don't call shots. Slaves don't decide when they'll show up to work or what kind of work they'll do. We simply follow and obey. Being a disciple of Jesus is going to involve cost. Now, it's free to become a disciple. But it doesn't mean that it's without a price. If we neglect the freeness of salvation, we misunderstand what grace is all about. But if we neglect the cost of discipleship, we cheapen this to nothing more than a ticket out of hell. I got my fire insurance. One of these would-be disciples in our passage here didn't realize the cost of following Jesus. Matthew 16 says again, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But then the other would-be disciple, he realized the cost of following Jesus, but he was unwilling to pay. He wanted it on his terms, and Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever does not take his cross and follow me, not worthy of me. And again, I read uh, from Carson, he wrote, in one sense, our salvation costs us absolutely nothing. 
In another, it costs us not less than everything. See, much of modern Christianity today wants the free grace of salvation without the take up your cross of discipleship. But see, these two things cannot be separated. You can't have one without the other. To do so, Carson says, is a cheap facsimile of grace that knows little of the biblical gospel and less of biblical holiness. The scribe here promised more than he was able to fulfill. More than he was ready to fulfill. He committed without properly understanding the terms. He romanticized Christian discipleship. And if he was like the rocky ground in Jesus' parable, which did not allow the seed to grow deep roots, he would be the one that eventually fell away under the difficulty and trouble that the world brings. The other disciple tried to rework the terms of discipleship. He was willing to follow, but in his own way and in his own time. He wasn't willing to give up everything just yet. One day he would follow, just not today. Many would-be Christians today come to Christ with the same expectations that these men had. We sometimes anticipate a comfortable life as Christians, one that is filled with the blessings and the honor and the privileges and the fame and the notoriety that comes from being a Christ follower. And then we believe the lie that becoming a Christian means we're going to have a wonderful life. And don't get me wrong, it is a wonderful life to follow Christ, just not the way we often think. When you think it's a wonderful life, we start thinking like a Hollywood ending, happily ever after. Not always the case in this life. Or we think that we can have Christianity on our own terms. Discipleship, following Jesus our way. We don't know what happened to these men. Many assume that they didn't honor their commitment to Christ. and They didn't follow Him when He saw through their words and spoke directly to the condition of their hearts. We don't really know. But unfortunately, many of us in our day, many people come to Christ for the wrong reasons. Whether we're looking for a route to the life that we wish we had, or we want to just have a happy addition to the life we already have. But if we come with these reasons, eventually, like the rich young man, we will turn away sad. They walk away frustrated because Jesus didn't fit their expectations. They're disappointed because being a Christian wasn't exactly what they hoped it would be. And they're more determined than ever to go out into the world and find their heart's desire. One writer wrote it like this. They left Christ to make a comfortable place for themselves in the world and to spend the rest of their lives hugging the subordinate. Let that not be said of us. Having heard Jesus' words His call to discipleship all the way back in Matthew 4 when He says, follow Me. Come after Me. Be My disciples until now. What are we going to do? Do we understand the realities of following Him? Are we prepared to pay whatever cost in order to follow Christ? Can we sing honestly the words of the song we sang this morning? All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Because in the flesh, if that's the reality, all I have is Christ. And they go, oh no. I need way more than this. I need running water. 
I need cable TV. I need two cars. I need vacation. I need days off of work. I need, I need plenty of things. But in Christ, we can truly say, all I have is Christ. That's good enough for me. That's, that's all I need. When we face difficulties, persecution in life, or when Jesus Himself interrupts our life and conflicts with our lifestyle, our routine, our worldview, we will be like those who followed Jesus for a while, eventually turned away. Maybe some of the saddest verses we ever read of Christ outside of the crucifixion. We read at one point in Christ's ministry, it says from that time many of His disciples went back, walked with Him no more. And then Jesus turned to the twelve. And He said, will you also go away? I have to ask myself that question. Will we also go away? When things don't turn out exactly as we want them, will we also go away? May we who have committed to following after Christ be found faithful in our service, committed to Him in our devotion, and willing to say, as Paul said, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. What is it for us? Will we follow? Or will we turn away?